Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Mike Spigler, who's the Vice President of Patient Support and Education for the American Kidney Fund. The American Kidney Fund, or AKF, I'll probably shorten it a couple times in here, works on behalf of the 37 million Americans that are living with kidney disease and the millions more that are at risk. And, and I think they just have an incredibly impressive scope of programs, supporting people all the way from awareness and prevention all the way through to post-transplant living and, and helping patients who are on diet. Dialysis. Mike, in particular, oversees a wide spectrum of programs and services as well. Prevention activities, very successful and top-rated health educational sources, as well as a direct financial assistance program that I mentioned. I'm really excited, Mike, to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me and taking the time. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and looking forward to our conversation today. So I, I gave a short overview, but I don't think I could do it justice, the amount of work that you all do. I'd love if you could just give a little bit of an overview of the American Kidney Fund's mission, uh, and then I'd love to hear also about how you got into it. Sure. Well, the American Kidney Fund, really, our tagline is fighting for on all fronts, and we really think that we do that. Um, you know, we have a wide range of programs that start with uh, just awareness about kidney disease and kidney health and prevention in general, all the way up through chronic kidney disease. And then, you know, should you end up on dialysis or a transplant, lots of education and support there. We have programs not only that educate patients, but also healthcare professionals as well. And, you know, unlike a lot of other organizations too, you know, where you get through everything else and you've got all the education programs there, but at the end of the day, you just need someone to help, you know, pay for bills that you can't afford. That's really where we step in and kind of differentiate in one way as well is our financial assistance programs. Uh, we offer assistance to one out of every six dialysis patients uh, in the U.S. And what I'm most proud of about that is we're on pace this year to help uh, about 2,100 of those patients end up with a kidney transplant by the end of the year. We had 1,900 last year, and we're ahead of pace uh, on that even this year, too. And if you look at those patients that transplant, they are kind of upside down from the rest of the world. The disparities that you usually see in transplant aren't in the group that we serve. So they are much more likely if you are African-American or Hispanic Latino to get a transplant with our assistance than kind of the general population too. So, you know, because we have this kind of 360 degree approach to all of the programs that we do, you know, we have a pretty good touch point with, with the community. One of the major initiatives that you've been working on relatively recently, I think kicked off in 2021, is the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project. And, and everybody listening to this knows that we spend a lot of time on genomics and precision medicine. Obviously, genomics and genetic testing is a key part of kidney disease. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that program. How did it come about? Um, you know, maybe you could talk through the, the four key pillars and, and some of the motivations behind uh, starting this program. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a program that I'm very excited about. I think it's, it's something that has really taken off here at AKF. It all started because that financial assistance program that I talked about, we actually collect a wide range of data on our patients. So I know everything from the modality that they're on for dialysis to the insurance type that they have to everything about their finances. I could tell you how much a patient you know, how much gas they put in their car every month. But from a health standpoint, we also have all of their comorbidity data and the primary cause of their kidney failure. And as we started to go through this kind of robust new system that we built out in 2018 to collect this data, one of the interesting or scary things that, I, I, that we started to look at that was the primary cause of kidney failure. We had 14% of our patients did not know what caused their kidney failure. And when you look at the United States renal data system numbers on that, it shows 5% don't know. So it got us thinking, you know, is there something going on with our particular patients because they are a poor population? I mean, uh, our patients, their annual household income is $25,000 or less. They, you know, predominantly from communities of color. Was there something special happening there? And as we started to go through this project, 
actually what we've started to realize is I think our data actually might be more accurate. It's not so much necessarily our populations having a, a hit on it. So, you know, we, we started this project, we put a steering committee together, some patients, uh, some leading researchers in this area, Dr. Ali, Gara- Ali Garavi from Columbia University was one of the, the, the steering committee members on this industry. And, and we put together this group of, of, of really key people to say, how can we solve this problem? We did a summit in December of 2020. We brought in every rare kidney disease advocacy organization. We had several federal government agencies there, more industry, more patients, more researchers to really think about what are the causes of, of this just generally in the population and especially what might be happening in our population and what can we do about that? So a couple of the key things have come out of that. You know, Dr. Garavi at that summit presented some research of his own, looking at, at some of the genetic makeup of, of patients and seeing a a broader, much broader amount than 5% that may have some kind of a, a genetic component to uh, their kidney disease. And, you know, we came up with a, a white paper, uh, which we called our roadmap for solving this problem. We did a release of that in July of last year and have really now, instead of just doing a white paper and walking away, we've really started to, to put some program effort toward that to implement it. So we've worked with, with three groups, one for patients and caregivers, and that group is really trying to empower patients to be able to confidently ask for a second opinion to get a family history, to understand the importance of knowing what caused their kidney disease. We have some policy efforts going on in the second group, which is really trying to get more protections for these patients, but also some more coverage for genetic testing and genetic counseling in Medicare and Medicaid, which is not the same as you would find in private insurance right now. So there's some big gaps there. And then the last piece is around healthcare professionals. And the reason why I said I think that we maybe have more true data than the US RDS we did a survey, Just we just published it uh, in March, and uh, we asked 300 healthcare professionals, and th- these are a wide range of primary care, nephrology, transplant surgeons, urban settings, rural settings. It was a really great mix. Thinking about their CKD patients, you know, what percentage do you for sure know the cause of? Which percentage do you think you know, but you're not 100% sure? And what percentage do you have absolutely no idea what caused their kidney disease? Out of that wide group of healthcare professionals, 15, they said 15% of their patients, they have no idea what caused their kidney wow. disease. It's about another third where they think they know, but they're not really sure. And only about another 40% or so where they confidently know it. So, you know, we now have genetic data from, from researchers like Dr. Garabi. We now have this, you know, this survey data from professionals across the country saying that and maybe it is toward that higher amount. And, you know, I've done some presentations on this and I always had people come up to me afterwards and say, well, I think I know what it is. It's it's these patients that are, you know, crashing into late stage kidney disease or dialysis. They show up in the emergency department or to the doctor's office. They have high blood pressure and with no other history or anything else, they go, oh, well, it must be high blood pressure that caused the kidney disease. When in fact, it's a kind of maybe a chicken and the egg scenario and the kidney disease is there and it's causing the high blood pressure. So if you look at that pie chart of the US RDS and the causes and you ask me kind of, you know, where do you think that that change may happen? I think it would be in high blood pressure. But there's still a lot of more work to be done there. And now we're starting to work on taking results of that survey and do some CME uh, programming as well. I'm glad you brought the survey because it came up in my research. And and I thought the quote from um, from Dr. Silas Norman, who I think is, uh, I believe, on on the board at AKF, yeah. and he's, he's also a um, medical director of kidney and pancreas transplantation at University of Michigan. He referred specifically to the importance of genetic testing. And I thought one of the really interesting things about that report that fits my experience with other disease areas as well is that healthcare providers often aren't comfortable 
ordering tests, interpreting tests, and they're willing to admit it, right? It's not that people are are saying, um, you know, we don't need it. They're saying we, we think we do need it, but we don't maybe don't have the training. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Why 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 has it taken so long to you know to, the first human genome was done in 2000 and it started to get reasonably cost effective five or maybe even 10 years ago, depending who you ask. What, what do you think is is needed to really have it hit the mainstream? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think from the professional standpoint in that survey, we also asked, you know, what do you view as barriers to ha- having your patients get genetic testing? And it was in the 90% of, of, pay- of doctors that said, they didn't think it was affordable. The out-of-pocket costs were too expensive for patients. But to your point, you know, the costs have really come down for that. There are a lot of companies that are offering it, you know, through some partnerships with with some rare disease pharma companies for free. But that perception is still there that it, it's not really achievable from a cost standpoint. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I think we don't have enough genetic counselors. I don't think we have enough genetic counselors familiar in renal. You know, I actually talking to to Silas, who you mentioned, you know, they've looked at trying to implement a program there where, you know, they would do genetic testing as part of any living donor kind of coming in. And, you know, they're struggling even themselves with having enough genetic counselors there to pull that off effectively. So, you know, you take that upstream to, you know, primary care or something like that, where they might not even know the genetic tests exist. It's just not going to happen. And the other major problem, too, I think is, you know, the, the survey also found, well, and not just our survey, I mean, there's been a multitude of surveys long before us that have showed that primary care not referring patients to nephrology until very late. I mean, the majority of our, the the people that we surveyed in this said they weren't referring patients till stage four was probably the the biggest segment, but also 3B, five. So, you know, you're not getting to a nephrologist who's probably going to have uh, more comfort and awareness of these genetic tests still pretty far along. So I think that's, that's a big part of it too. It's, it's, because the genetic te- the genetic counselor is such an important part of it, right? You want someone on the front end to make sure you're getting the right test done, and a genetic counselor on the back end, when it comes back, you can actually easily interpret it. So, you know, it's making sure that the, the finances and the genetic counseling is and, and the right person is kind of all in the, in the right place at the right time. We need some protocols from a community to start to figure out exactly who, what, where, and why, and how genetic testing happens to solve this. Do you have a sense within the, you know, 14, 15% of people that have an unknown cause? Do you have a sense of of what proportion of that might be genetic? Because you said something really interesting earlier that I think based on the epidemiology, there's probably a good chunk of those individuals who have a rare genetic kidney disease, right? And something like exome sequencing could find it. But then there's also genetic factors that are going to be present in every member of the population. And and so even outside of that 14%, you might have uh, within the 86% people who are, you know, they, they know their cause, but actually genetics may be a, a, a contributor or a partial cause. Yeah. And they don't know about that. I'm curious whether, you know, you and, and the and the group you've been working with have done any estimates or digging into what that, you know, what that unexplained fraction could look like. I mean, it's it's hard to tell, right? But to your point, sure, it could just be a standalone rare disease. It could be something like APOL1, which is causing progression faster in some patients. So while it's not a genetic disease in and of itself, it is causing, you know, progression of, of CKD faster. Anecdotally, I mean, we did some of the patients that we, another key part that we looked at when we first took this program on is we looked at our patients who knew the cause of their kidney failure versus those that didn't. There was a higher percentage of patients who had lost one or multiple transplants that did not know their cause versus those that did. 
Now, we anecdotally just kind of picked a few of them and, and reached out to them. And we did find some patients that had, you know, something like FSGS. They were diagnosed as having high blood pressure, even though they'd never had high blood pressure diagnosis before, went to the emergency room uh, in kidney failure, got a living donor transplant, lost that living donor transplant because their FSGS, which had never been found before, attacked that kidney as well. So it's certainly possible. I can't say, you know, for sure that that's what's happening. It's certainly the hypothesis, though, I will tell you. Well, and I and I think you're, you know, you're going to find that out as you start to roll out this program, right, which is really exciting. And I think a great step in the right direction that if you can start to even put some rough quantums to, you know, what what is the source of the problem or set of problems within this group, then you can start to come up with an action plan of, okay, if it's if 5% of them are, are rare diseases, then how do we ensure patients who are most likely to have one of these rare diseases get access to genetic testing? If, you know, another 5% is something else, uh, you know, you, 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 you can really start to make a plan where previously you've just got one in six people saying, I, I don't know what's causing this. And, right. and that's the end of the road, basically. Absolutely. I'd love to talk a little bit about in the initial kind of white paper or or document that you outlined the plan, you highlighted the fact that uh, Black Americans are 4x more likely to experience uh, chronic kidney failure. Um, what are some of the drivers behind this? And, and you know, what, what are you all already doing and thinking about doing to try to address that? Well, it's obviously a combination of factors. We could probably have an entire podcast about why that is. I'm sure you know. But, you know, I mentioned just, uh, I want to start with just the the scientific part of it and then really go into the kind of the social aspects of it. You know, the APOL1 gene, which I'm sure if your listeners are not familiar with, is, you know, a a gene uh, predominantly from patients of, of recent African ancestry that had some protective benefit, you know, from a genetic standpoint for patients they living in Africa from a sleeping sickness, but has been shown to cause kidney disease progression to be faster, especially in, in diabetic patients, but also, you know, patients with things like FSGS. So I think that's a that's a key factor, at least not so much as the onset, but certainly the progression into kidney failure. But obviously, you know, there are major issues here in our healthcare system that from a, a racial standpoint, you know, harder to get access to uh, specialists. I mean, if, if you are African-American and poor and you are on Medicaid or some kind of a program like that, it's, it's harder to get in to see a nephrologist. You may get a later referral. You know, there are just some very simple health benefits here that that many of us enjoy that, that other populations might not. I mean, you know, everyone always says eat healthy and exercise. That might not be a, a viable option to a lot of patients if they're in a a food desert. You know, there are also some some cultural competency issues, I think, that happen. You know, there's just a lot of of things happening. Of course, there are higher rates of diabetes and high blood pressure in those populations as well. But again, managing them requires access to some healthy options. And a lot of times those things aren't there. You know, the main kind of formula for determining whether or not someone has kidney disease uh, was the EGFR calculation, estimated glomerular filtration rate. You know, there had been for years and years and years a coefficient in that equation for African-Americans that was basically falsely inflating their numbers a little bit. So for me as a Caucasian, that might have said I was in stage three, and for them it's going to say stage two. You know, there, there was some relatively strong science 
behind it. I mean, the creatinine numbers are, are higher just as a baseline in African-Americans versus Caucasians, but to translate that into an EGFR just doesn't really seem like a, a fair thing to do. It was a unnecessary kind of othering uh, that was put in. And I think that will help too, because if, you know, if, if patients are qualifying to see a nephrologist earlier, to get on the kidney transplant list earlier, because the numbers are more accurate, I think that will go a long way too. So it's, it, it's the science. It's it's the kind of systemic racism that has that has caused some disproportionate consequences on these populations, and then just some you know unnecessary errors. I think that we've done in the healthcare community, both things like the EGFR calculation have all played a role. Is is there an area of the kind of spectrum from early early diagnosis, detection, prevention, all the way through to you know, transplant dialysis support that you feel like the most attention is needed. As I was preparing for this, I I think one of the amazing things that you all do is you cover such a broad spectrum. And I, and I think that's probably because somebody sat down and said, no, there really is no one place. We, we, we really actually need to look at the whole system. But I'm curious whether there are some areas that, you know, are maybe more urgent than others where you, we can make a bigger impact sooner. Well, I think one of the things is we have to get patients the full range of testing available to them when they go to see the doctor. <clears throat> when we did the survey that I was talking about, we did a qualitative phase two. So we did kind of one hour interviews with primary care nephrologists, urologists. We cast a very wide net in that initial phase. And one of the things that we found was every primary care doctor that we surveyed and we had a conversation with said, yeah, I don't really do any urine testing. I probably have patients in stage one and stage two, but I wouldn't know. Um, you know, we do the EGFR and if it comes back as, as being, you know, low, then, you know, we'll refer to nephrology stage 3B, 4, something like that. And I think that's a major problem. Even in our survey, we, you know, we, we looked at who's getting like a complete metabolic panel and, and getting that blood test versus those that are getting the urine tests. And I, I have seen that happen in my own life with my own family members who aren't getting that, that urine test done. You know, you're never going to find stage one or two if you're not doing the urine test to kind of accompany it. So I know there are several organizations out there trying to push for more standardization of that. If we can at least get standardization in high-risk individuals, we're getting a little bit of better in that if you're diabetic, but not so much if you have uncontrolled hypertension. If you're in one of these risk groups, you're, it's just not happening. So you, you know, we're in a, a place right now that we weren't in 15 years ago. We did not have the innovations that we have now. We did not have the genetic testing abilities that we have now. And I think for a lot of doctors that have been in, in health systems too, I don't want to put it on the doctors themselves. Sometimes these are directives coming from their health systems. There, there's just, it hasn't caught up to, to the innovations that we have here. There are medications now to help tremendously with diabetic kidney disease at, at a minimum. But frankly, I mean, there are things like metformin and ACEs and ARBs that aren't even being applied right now at, at a standard level. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to find the patients. It's the other thing then to make sure they're getting the right treatment on top of it, too. So it's, it's all of those pieces. And we just have to do a better job of, of trying to get these innovations out to physicians because if they feel like they have tools. They're going to be to treat. They're going to be more likely to identify. So I think that's a big part of it. Too. And, and, and why do you think that is, is because it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that it wouldn't be a it wouldn't necessarily be a cost issue, right? Your in your analysis is not expensive. Is it an incentives issue in the sense that they're thirty like like your stats say thirty seven million Americans, and you know maybe there aren't great treatment or prevention strategies. So do people throw their hands up a little bit and say like, yeah, we we could do these urine analysis, but 
uh, you know, not what can I do about it? Or is it, is it lack of awareness? What, why is it that we've got some of these obvious tools, but they're just not being applied? I, I think it's, it's a, it's hard question to answer. I mean, I think, I think it's certainly somewhat lack of awareness. I think there's also a fear of overdiagnosis. Well, we find these patients, we're going to flood right. nephrology. You know, there is a, a lack of nephrologists in the U S right now. I mean, that's for sure. Uh, it, it could be that too, but that's why we have to really think about how how do we appropriately triage these patients. Okay, then let's not do it with everyone. But you know, if you've got a patient with family history of of, of kidney disease or they have high blood pressure, you know, then then we have to think about at least trying to focus in on those patients. And and, and so you're right; it's it's not really a cost issue. It's it's just that the guidelines aren't there to to push it at unless you're you're diabetic. And we've got to really work together as a community to try to fix that. Right, and and that's where you can get kind of frustratingly uh, asymmetric outcomes, right? Where one, you know, and, and it's very often socioeconomically divided, but it sometimes, you know, can also just be random, right? Where your one doctor has, uh, has actually got, yeah. and I, I think you shared a, uh, a personal story, if you don't mind me sharing it. I was, as I was prepping, I, I think one of the things you said that got you, you know, maybe passionate about this space in the first place is that I think your mother was affected by chronic kidney disease and yeah wasn't getting the care and attention that she needed. And, and if you hadn't been there to advocate for her, then you, you, you know, it just it probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. The sad part about this is, as I've told this story, I've heard multiple people recount, you know, similar stories. So I am the primary caregiver for my mom. I became that so suddenly when my dad passed away about four or five years ago. And, you know, I, I moved her down closer to me and took her to a primary care appointment. And, and just a little background on my family. My grandmother died of diabetic kidney disease while on dialysis. My mom had high blood pressure and uncontrolled diabetes. So all of the risk factors should be, you know, sending alarm bells out about kidney disease. And I'm in the appointment with my mom if she's had her blood work done. And the doctor's going through everything and he says, oh yeah, your kidney kidney function's off a little bit, nothing to worry about. And just was going to blow right by it. And I, you know, I said, oh, time out, you know, the wrong guy in the room to kind of blow, <laughs> blow by that piece. And she was in stage 3A of kidney disease, but she was on medications that were going to exacerbate it, you know, or some arthritis medications that were going to exacerbate it. We got her off that, those meds and switched things up. She progressed a little bit in the stage 3B, but she's been there ever since. And you know, unfortunately, she's multiple other issues now. Alzheimer's is, is really the, the key problem now. But, you know, we kept her off dialysis because she was on a trajectory. And and so it's it's not just having the test done. I think you bring up a good point. That That's a part of it. I mean, these tests may be de- being done, but the test has to be done and the doctor has to communicate it. And even if that's happening, you, the doctor has to communicate it in a way that the patient can understand. I mean, even my, my neighbor, I you know, came to me and he said, yeah, uh, I'm going to see some nef something. I don't know what it's for or why. Do you have any idea what that does or what they're for? And I was like, okay, well, that's a kidney disease doctor. Let me look at your lab results. And he was in stage four. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it's one thing to have the test. That's the first barrier. It's the other thing to be told that you have a bad result. That's the second thing. And the third piece has to be done in a way that you understand it. So to have all three of those things happen, I think is, is a big challenge. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on about that. And, and thank you for sharing the story about your mother. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the Alzheimer's. I, is it fair to say that she was one of the motivations for you to get involved in this in the first place? Because I think you've, you've been at AKF twice, right? You started there earlier in your career and then again later on. 
Yeah, so she was not the impetus for coming the first time. The first time was just kind of happenstance that I ended up coming here. I, I, I came to AKF in the early 2000s. I was here for about five years. I left for a couple other opportunities in the nonprofit space and was in uh, mental health and then food allergies for a while. But she was certainly one of the, the reasons for coming back. And, you know, I've been here seven years this, this go around as well. And, and I've really enjoyed my position here. And, and it's such a great place to work. And it's also a, a great mission that we have. And like I said, just seeing the the wide range of, you know, knowing that every day we come in and we help pre- help prevent kidney disease. But for those that are only on dialysis, knowing what we do to get patients transplanted, it, it really is a, a very fulfilling place to work. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any new technologies that you're excited about, whether it's, you know, testing at the early stages, xenotransplantation, you probably you know, think about all sorts of things. And I know your team's funding a lot of research. What What are you excited about? Are there one or two things that you think are really going to make an impact in the next five or 10 years? Well, I mean, I'll start with the 10 year piece. I mean, I would, I am super hopeful that the artificial kidney will, uh, will come to fruition at some point. You know, they've got most of the technology down. They're trying to get some of the you know, the, the, the kidney cells that would get the toxins out of the blood, if they can get that fixed, I mean, that would go a long way to keeping patients off of dialysis. Uh, perhaps. What's the scale of that problem look like? How, how many patients go on dialysis that could benefit from a kidney transplant? Yeah, I mean, I think we have something like 600,000 patients in, wow. in kidney failure in the U.S. right now. So that's a, that's a huge piece. I mean, not everyone will qualify for it for the, the artificial kidney because of, you know, surgery risk and things like that, but most may. I mean, who knows what the scale, to your point though, what, what, I don't know, when that comes to market, what's the scaling look like? I don't know that, but that's definitely on the, on the, on the, the long-term end. I think on the front end, I mean, I mentioned some of the, the SGLT2s, uh, GLP1s for patients with diabetic kidney disease. I mean, diabetic kidney disease is, you know, that's 40% plus of patients on kidney failure. If we can manage that aspect, I mean, maybe we can prevent patients from getting on kidney, a fair amount from getting on dialysis in the first place. But another thing we did with that survey that I mentioned is we asked primary, there was a significant number of primary care doctors. We asked them, I opened the question, just list some of the new innovations in the kidney disease space. And they were not, they were not mentioned very often. So there's a lot of work to be done wow. to raise awareness about that. And, 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 uh, I really think they're a game changer, the, the, that class of drugs just on the front end. But I mean, for rare disease also, there's just so many, innovations happening right now. I mean, when I worked here the first time in the early 2000s, I was kind of an entry-level position here. I was answering the, the helpline phone calls with patients calling in. And just to think back, people calling in with, a, you know, IGAN or something like that. And I would say, well, here's what it is. I'm not really a cure for it or anything. So right. talk to your doctor. And now there's a medication for it. And I think there's something like 50 different trials going on for IGAN alone. So I think that, you know, again, to circle all the way back, you know, to, to, the, to the work you guys are doing too, it's in this genetic realm, there are answers and solutions for patients now. So, you know, PKD is another one. You have polycystic kidney disease. That might've been something where, you know, you have a family member that had it previously. And I, I know people that have had PKD, like I don't want to get tested, but the fear doesn't have to be that there is a, there is a treatment for it now. So yes. th- these innovations across the board from, you know, the kind of the quote unquote run of the mill diabetic kidney disease to rare disease to eventual, you know, eventual, you know, solutions for things like dialysis with the artificial kidney. It, it, it's the, the vast difference from the early 2000s to coming in here now is just unbelievable. I think it's great. It's a very optimistic note to end on. There's one other thing that I wanted to flag up, which is I, I think you all are hosting Kidney Action Week in uh, in early June, right? June 6th to 10th for people who want to either 
take part, join one of your events or help out in some way? What, what, what should they do? And, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So the first thing I would recommend is go to kidneyactionweek.org. You do have the dates right. It's June 6th through the 10th. It is completely free for uh, patients. Well, it's free for anyone, but you know it's aimed at patients and caregivers. You can pre-register at kidneyactionweek.org. If you follow us on Facebook or on YouTube, they're also going to be simulcast live on both of those platforms as well. We had over 7,500 unique patient participants wow. last year's event. I think it's going to be even higher this year. We have 20 different sessions uh, that are full sessions and also another 15 of things like cooking demonstrations and fitness demonstrations and things like that. So there are lots of great information no matter where you are. So if you're in chronic kidney disease, you know, we have, we have you know, things to keep you off of dialysis and, and, and from kidney failure. If you have a rare disease, so we have a, a session on uh, IGAN. We have a session on polycystic kidney disease. We have a session uh, on chronic stone formers. So for some of the stone, kidney stone rare diseases, we have information on that. If you're on dialysis, we've got information on home dialysis. If you're trying to get the, the kidney transplant list, we've got a whole session on that. So really a, a really rich, free program. So it's kidneyactionweek.org. Uh, we'd love to have everyone join that. I checked out the website and you all have, I mean, you must spend, uh, you must spend six months to a year planning this thing out because you've got an incredible list of speakers and and a lot of really creative sessions as well. Is this one of the big, yeah. big things that your team focuses on? Yeah, you know, this this came out of the pandemic. One of the, the only positives of the combat pandemic is that, you know, we used to go out in the community and do these events in person. They're called kitchen, Kidney Action Days in underserved population or, uh, uh, communities. And we would do, you know, cooking demonstrations and screenings and exercise demos live. That obviously did not survive the pandemic. So we moved it kind of online. And now we've it's not just kind of prevention, it's everything. You're right. It takes about nine months to pull it off. And we're moving it next year into March. So what that means is the second this one is over, we already start planning for the next year's. Uh, but it'll live in March in perpetuity moving forward for Kidney Month. Great. And the other thing I wanted to suggest that people follow you on Twitter if they're interested. I, I think you're at Michael Spigler. I, uh, I had a lot of fun preparing for the episode scrolling back through i think my favorite was uh seeing you as ted lasso for halloween yeah last year so uh it's if you. scroll back yeah. a little ways yeah i'm not as active as i probably should be in my position but uh, i try to post some things on there when i can so uh, a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain there for oh, sure i think it's great and um i think ted is a uh, leadership inspiration to us all isn't he he's uh yes. unflappable. well thank you again I, I really appreciate it i really enjoyed the discussion thanks for the amazing work you and the rest of the team are doing thank you patrick i really appreciate it and thanks for all the work you're doing to, to continue bring innovation to the space thanks everybody for listening and as always please share with a friend if you like the episode leave us a review on your favorite podcast player to help other people find us and as always get in touch if you have any guest ideas suggestions on how we can improve thanks again and we'll see you next time Thank you.